Some of you are wondering if we are ever going to shut up about the Grumlaw 7, and if that is you, you are officially over this series. I have some incredible news for you next week. Uh, today, as it turns out, we are actually wrapping up this series. We're coming to a conclusion with the series that we are calling the Grumlaw 7, which, if I'm being honest, is at least a little bit sad for me, uh, because throughout this series, I've had this opportunity to talk about and put onto paper, well, actually not onto paper, onto a computer, uh, things that have been floating around in my head for, honestly, years, convictions that God has laid on my heart as he's kind of put on this, this conviction to start this church here in Grand Blank. So we certainly hope that you have enjoyed this series as well. Uh, I'll also say, if you haven't been here lately, or maybe this is your first time walking through our doors, and actually let me just pause and say, we are so glad that you decided to show up. We're so glad that you decided to take that risk and walk through our doors and make Grumlaw a part of your week. Uh, but if that is you, you might be wondering what in the heck the Grumlaw 7 actually are. And so without further ado, here's what the Grumlaw 7 are. Uh, weekends, baptism, daily encounter, generosity, groups, serve, and share. And so what we've been doing every single week during this series is taking one of these elements among the Grumlaw 7, unpacking them, and talking about why we think these things are so important to your life, every single one of our lives. Now, I've also said in previous weeks, and I'll say it again this morning, we are not nearly arrogant enough to try to convince you that we somehow invented these things. We did not. We just tried to put them into a logical order and maybe use some terminology that's maybe a little bit easier to understand. And so in the very first First week we talked about weekends, why we do what we do here on Sunday mornings, why we go to the trouble of waking up at you know, very, very early, getting here, setting this all up, and then we tear it all down. Uh, the second week we talked about baptism, that if you call yourself a Jesus follower and since making that decision to follow Jesus, you have not gone public with your faith and been publicly baptized, what are you waiting for? You never know how your story might help another story be told. In the third week, we talked about daily encounter, why it's so important that we spend daily time with God, talking to him, having conversations with him, opening up this book that we call the Bible and allowing that Bible to speak into our lives. In the fourth week, we talked about generosity, why it's so important that we are generous with our finances because it isn't until we are generous with our finances that we are going to experience financial freedom and money, especially in America, has this way of kind of weighing us down. Then we talked about groups. Uh, as mentioned by Melissa, it's so important that we get out of the rows of Sunday mornings and we get into circles in people's living rooms because that's when true connection happens and we believe that life is meant to be connected, not isolated. And then last week, of course, we talked about serving consistently putting the needs of other people ahead of our own. And when we do that, our lives will indeed actually be better. And today we talk about share. And we're confident, what's so good about the Grumlaw 7, we're confident that regardless of where you're at on this whole faith journey, that your next step or steps is somewhere here among the Grumlaw 7. And maybe even more exciting than that, if these seven elements are a part of your life, you are definitely moving closer to God. And one of the incredible promises that God gives us is that as we move closer to him, without fail, he will always move closer to us. And so today, as we wrap up this series, and by the way, this is worth mentioning, there's no particular order for these things. I mean, we had to put them in some order for the sake of planning these services, but the way that you tackle these might be different than the person that's sitting next to you. But today, as we wrap up this series, we are going to be talking about share. Now, some of y'all just got excited because you pictured this really tall white woman with like black curly hair going, do you believe? I couldn't resist. Okay. No, what we're talking about when we use the word share, particularly in the context of the Grum Law 7, here's what we mean. Telling others about Jesus and how he has transformed your life. Telling other people about Jesus and how Jesus has transformed your life. One of the most fascinating and honestly perhaps perplexing things about Christianity 
is that if you call yourself a Jesus follower, and by the way, if you're not a Jesus follower, you are totally off the hook for this right now, but if you call yourself a Jesus follower, he invites you to play a part in his redemptive plan for the world. He actually urges and desires to use you so that other people might know him and hear about him. Now, I call this perplexing because really nowhere else in life do we see this sort of example. Let me explain what I mean by that. Have any of you, by a show of hands, ever gotten a really terrible haircut? Come on, admit to this. Come on. Any of y'all got a haircut where after getting that haircut, you were just like, what the heck happened? I think some of you are lying. I feel like we've all gotten a terrible haircut at certain points in our lives. That's happened to me a couple different times. Most notably, my sophomore year of high school. My mom had given me this deadline. She said, hey, you need a haircut uh, by this point uh, because as she so lovingly put it, I looked homeless. And so uh, I knew that I needed to go get a haircut. And if I would have made an appointment with like her friend, then she was going to pay for it. But she knew that I was a high schooler and that I probably was going to procrastinate. And so she told me, hey, if you don't get your haircut by this time, you're not going to be able to get in. And at which point it's going to fall on you and you're going to have to pay for it. Well, what did I did? I waited till like the last minute. It was like two days before I needed to get a haircut, called the salon frantically. And she's like, sorry, can't get you in. So I was driving home from school knowing that I had to get this haircut. And I, because I was now paying for it, was looking for the cheapest deal on haircuts imaginable. And on my way home, I noticed that good old Borix, and if you work for Borix, I have friends that work for Borix, I'm sorry, but this was just my experience. Uh, Borix was advertising $6 haircuts. And as it turns out, when you pay for a $6 haircut, you get a $6 haircut. So I went in there, and I was like, all right, sweet, six bucks. I mean, this can't be that bad. And, and, and keep in mind, at this time of my life, I had this mop of a haircut. I mean, it was like down well over my ears. It was really like thick hair. So it was kind of come out. I had like the old Bieber swoop. But it was actually before Bieber. It was the Shea swoop, all right? So I had the Shea swoop going on. And all I told the lady, I was like, hey, I want like half an inch off, and I just want you to thin it out. Like, they use those weird scissors. They got like all these teeth, you know. It just kind of thins the hair out. So I was like, that's all I want you to do. And so she's like, okay, got it. She kind of turns me around so I'm not facing the mirror, and I'm like watching a lot of hair fall. I'm like, man, was this really that thick? And she just keeps cutting away and cutting away, and I'm kind of looking, catching glimpses in the mirror going, I don't know that this is what I asked for. And by the end of it, my hair did not look good. And, and I no longer had long hair. I had quite short hair. And at that time, I was quite proud of, of, of my long hair. And I was pretty bummed out. And I looked at the mirror, she's like, this is what you had in mind? And I didn't have the heart to tell her that, no, this is not what I had in mind. And I went out into my car, I gave her $6, and I went out into my car, and I remember pulling down the mirror, hoping that it would somehow be a little bit better than what it seemed like it was going to be inside, and I looked, and it was awful. Not only was it short, I mean, it was like all uneven, it was so bad, and I kid you not, here I am, a sophomore in high school, 16 years old, I started crying. (laughs) started bawling. I was like, oh my gosh, because image is everything in high school. I was like, oh, this is like terrible. Like I was so devastated. And then after I got like done being so worked up and done crying, then it turned to anger. Like these are the grieving stages of terrible haircuts. Then it turned to anger. And I remember asking myself this question, how in the heck does that woman have a job? And chances are, when you got a terrible haircut, you too asked the exact same thing. How in the heck does that person have a job? Now, In fairness, it's entirely possible that that young woman that day could have just had a bad day, right? And I was just the victim of like this one-time occurrence and, you know, whatever, so be it. But it's also entirely possible that she was just horrendous at her job, right? And if that was the case, eventually Bo Ricks would tell her, hey, you are no longer welcome to butcher people's haircuts in our establishment. It's time to adios. You're fired. And none of that's unique to the beauty industry, right? 
That describes every single profession on the planet. Eventually, if you are not very good at your job, your employer is going to ask you to stop doing your job. Now, why I bring that up and why that's pertinent to our conversation today is because Jesus almost takes the complete opposite approach. Jesus says, even though you're not very good at this, I'm going to use you anyway. Even though you're not very good at this whole life thing and you continue to make mistakes, I am going to use you anyway. Now, I would love to try to convince all of you, especially those of you that are not Jesus followers, that upon following Jesus, you'll suddenly stop sinning. Uh, you, you'll stop doing those things that you'll later regret. You'll, you'll, you'll never react poorly to your spouse again. You'll suddenly overnight become dad, mom of the year. Uh, your friendships will all just suddenly miraculously improve. All of your financial problems will just go away. But any of you that have been a Jesus follower for longer than five minutes would be quick to say that is not really the case. Following Jesus, we strongly believe this. Over time, we think it will definitely improve your marriage. We think that it will absolutely improve your relationships. We think that it will definitely make you a better parent. It'll make you a better friend, but it doesn't suddenly make you perfect. Jesus followers still sin and make mistakes all the time. No, what differentiates Jesus followers isn't an absence of sin. Now, keep in mind, this is what's supposed to differentiate Jesus followers. There's plenty of self-righteous Jesus followers out there that we all just want to slap. Uh, what differentiates Jesus followers isn't an absence of sin. It's an awareness of that sin problem. And actually, it goes further than that. What's supposed to differentiate Jesus followers, well, again, we, we don't stop sinning. We still make mistakes all the time. But what's supposed to differentiate us is an awareness of that sin problem, and we're actively trying to get that sin out of our lives. We are taking steps to, to rid our lives of that sin. We're no longer complacent doing those things that we come to later regret. It's not that the sin goes away. It's that we're trying to get that sin out of our lives. And we don't do that just arbitrarily because it sounds like the right thing to do. No, we do that because when we get that sin out of our lives, that is what improves our marriages. It'll make your friendships better. It'll make your relationships better. It will make you a better parent. That's one of the incredible things about following Jesus is that God doesn't just arbitrarily ask us to do these things. It's so much better than that. When we do these things, it will actually improve our lives, but we certainly won't stop sinning. Case in point, I came home a couple of weeks ago, and my daughter, Logan, was just in Dr. Destructo mode, that's what I refer to it as, and she was just going around picking up all the things that she knows that she's not supposed to pick up, like candles, and we have these weird balls like on our, on our, on our coffee table that like, have like tree bark like, taped all over them. We have like, these weird decorations in our homes. You all have these weird decorations in our homes. Who invented this crap? But anyway, she's going up and she's picking up all these types of things, she's grabbing everything that she knows that she's not supposed to grab, things that she never grabs. And she had done this like five times, and every single time I'm getting a little bit more angry and a little bit more frustrated. She goes around, picks up a couple more things, and she finally reaches for this can of pop that I had on the table. And as she reaches for it, I react not so well, and I, I yell. I'm not going to do it now because I'll blow your ears out. But I said, Logan, put it down! And as I said it, it scared her, and she dropped it. And it, of course, spilled all over the place. And then I said, Logan, dang it! And then, of course, what happens? She just starts bawling, right? Because truthfully, in her little two-year-old brain, I think she was trying to be helpful. She was just trying to hand me all of this stuff for some reason. But because I reacted so poorly, she's sitting there bawling, and then I feel bad because I, I, I didn't react very well. There have been times over the last year where my wife and I, we, we've watched movies where at the end of the movie we go, why didn't we turn that off? 
I mean, why don't we have the courage to turn those things off? Now, I could keep going and tell you every single sin that I've committed over the last couple of years, but that probably wouldn't be a very good exercise. Uh, But my point is, despite my constant sin problem, despite my inability sometimes to control my thoughts and control my actions, despite the fact that seemingly sometimes I have no self-control, despite the terrible example I am sometimes to my wife and my friends and my family and even my employees, even though I'm not very good at this, God chooses to use me anyway. God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect mission. He had me start a church. There's like this thing that happens about once a day, and I'm not just saying this for the sake of the story. About once a day, there's this moment, and it's usually when I'm by myself, either when I'm driving in my car, I'm looking at myself in the mirror, and I I literally sit there and I just go, what the heck? God, why did you pick me? I mean, why me? I'm so prone to do things that I know that I shouldn't do. I react so bad sometimes to my wife. I can be such a terrible husband. I can be such a terrible dad. Like, God, why in the heck did you choose me? But this isn't unique to me. Chances are God's probably not calling you to start a church. But here's what I guarantee. Make no mistake about it. God desires, he longs to use you to reach your neighbors, to reach your friends, to reach your coworkers, to reach your family members, to reach those people that you interact with on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, to reach those people that, that, that you would say you care very much about. He longs to use us. He wants to use imperfect people to accomplish his perfect mission. Let me pause real quick right there and, and, and pray for us. Father, I ask you all the time, what the heck, why, why did you choose me? Why do you choose any of us? Because we're so prone to turn our backs to you. But I say thank you. I thank you for, for giving us second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and so on and so on. And all these different chances. We thank you for not giving up on us. I ask you, Father, that you would do something special in this room today. That you would speak to each person that's sitting in this room today and that we wouldn't just walk out just going, okay, I feel convicted, but things would actually change in our lives. It's in your name I pray, amen. So God desires, he even longs, and if I could be so blunt, if he, you call yourself a Jesus follower, he, he actually demands to use you. One of the biggest misnomers about following Jesus, about being a Christian, is that when it comes to spreading the name of Jesus and telling other people about Jesus, uh, that responsibility lies solely on a pastor, or at least, at the very least, people that work directly in the ministry. Because haven't we all heard, or haven't we all even said things like, man, if I could only just get him to church... I mean, if I, if I could just get her to show up, if she would just walk through the doors, then things would be different. I, I wish that I could just take my pastor to work with me and, and I could get him or I could get her to have a conversation with my coworker. I, I wish that I could, oh man, I just want him, or I want her so badly to just listen to that message. Now, if you're not a Jesus follower, I'm gonna give you some ammo right now, and this is a problem that you should have with, with Jesus followers. This is a gripe that you should have with Jesus followers, and perhaps it's even something that you have thought or even been so bold to say as you've thought about following Jesus or coming to church and exploring this whole faith thing. If Jesus is so great, why don't more Jesus followers talk about him? I mean, if Jesus is so amazing, 
and he's everything that he's hyped up to be here on Sunday mornings, then why don't more Jesus followers talk about him? Because truthfully, if we really believe that Jesus is the son of God, if we believe that he came and he died for us, if we believe that, that God looked down into this mess of a world, this mess that we had created for ourselves because we sinned, we, we sinned, we caused that separation between ourselves and God, but that God looked down at that mess and he sought to find a solution and that came in the form of his son who after spending some time on the earth, he was killed for mistakes that he never made, for sins that he never committed for us so that we could still have a relationship with him. But three days later, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. If that's all true, if we believe that, shouldn't that be something that we are bringing up on a regular basis? I mean, if Jesus has really transformed your life, shouldn't we be almost dying to share that with other people? Shouldn't that be something that almost naturally spills out from us? Shouldn't we want that life change for our friends and our family members and our coworkers and our neighbors? Shouldn't we want that so badly that we actually tell people about it? Tell them not only uh, about who Jesus is, but what he has done practically for your life. Share how it's changed your relationships. Share how it's changed your marriage, your friendships, your finances, your priorities. In virtually every area of our lives, and, and we talked about this during the week of baptism, if something exciting or positive happens to us, wh wh whether it's big or small, regardless of if you're an introvert or an extrovert, we tell other people about it. If you see a great movie, you tell people about it. If you find a store where the deals are just unbelievable, you tell people about it. Your kid dominates his or her track meet, you tell people about it. You get a new car, you tell people about it. Shoot, you don't even just tell people about it. You take pictures and you put these little like smiley faces next to it called emojis and you put it on the internet for the entire world to see. You tell people about it. If it had a positive effect on us, we share it with others. Big or small, introvert or extrovert, it's almost always the case. Now, with all that being said, and all that is the backdrop, when it comes to sharing your faith, when it comes to, to inviting people to church, telling other people about what God has done in your life, I'm going to stop picking on you for a minute and tell you, I get it. I understand why we can be hesitant. I get that almost unknown fear that seems to swell up inside of us. I understand why we can be so quick to talk ourselves out of it. Believe it or not, I have those exact same fears. I know the feeling well of knowing that God is calling me and telling me that I'm supposed to invite my neighbor to church and walking up to that neighbor and my heart is just beating out of my chest. I know the feeling well of, of working in a secular world and I, I didn't always work as a pastor. I know that feeling of, of knowing that God is telling me that I have to go have a conversation with one of my coworkers. Like it's just this pressure that's mounting and walking up to that person and just feeling like, oh my gosh, I can't do this. I know how difficult it can be for whatever reason to share our faith with the people that are closest to us, with an in-law, with a family member. I get those emotions and I think it typically stems from one of two things. Number one, we fear rejection. Or two, 
we're afraid that we won't have the answers. Number one, we're, we're afraid if we put ourselves out there, we, we'll just flat out get rejected. We invite, we ask a person to coffee, we offer to share uh, how Jesus has changed us, and, and the person just flat out says no, or, or even worse, uh, that they're so deeply offended by what we would have just said to them that, that, that they just haul off and they promise to never talk to us again, which, mind you, has literally happened like five times in the history of the world. But that's how we dream it up in our heads. Or two, we have that conversation and the person's actually somewhat receptive to it. And they're like leaning in and they even ask a couple of questions, but then they go on maybe 10, 15 minutes into it and they ask you a question that you do not know the answer to. <clears throat> now, not ironically, this is not something that, that is new to people living in the 21st century. What's so crazy about the Bible is oftentimes, and I've brought this up already quite a few times, is as you read in Scripture, you find out that people struggled with the exact same issues thousands and thousands of years ago that we are still struggling with today, and, and this is no different from that. In fact, there's a writer in, in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, a guy by the name of Paul, in fact, he wrote like half of the New Testament. He wrote all these letters to all these Christian churches that were popping up all over the place. And one of the churches uh, that he wrote this to was all these little house churches that were popping up kind of almost secretively around Rome. And we don't actually think he ever even visited Rome, but he wrote this letter to these Christian churches that were popping up all over Rome as a way of kind of encouraging them. And one of the things that he documents is like, hey, listen, I get the idea that we can be a little bit hesitant sometimes to tell people about what God has done in our lives. I understand why why we can be a little bit fearful of that. And so he first just comes out and he just kind of presents you know, the message of Jesus. He says this, he says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be safe. Now we can't just breeze past that because some of you need to hear that this morning. This is the simplicity of Jesus. Or you maybe have heard church people use the word the gospel, the good news of Jesus. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, like you actually declare it, and you believe in your heart, you believe in your heart of hearts that God really did send his son for you, but that that son, Jesus, didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. I mean, if you believe that, you don't just think that's a fairy tale, but that that is something real, you will be saved. It's that simple. He says, for it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, that you now have a right standing with God. It's simply based on belief. By, it's based on trust. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Now, if you're new to this whole church thing or, you know, honestly, you got bribed into showing up here today or somebody really just put an ultimatum and said, you're coming, you don't really want to be here today. Up to this point, you may have felt like this has maybe been pretty insider talk. But here is why what we are talking about this morning has importance to your life, why it has relevance to your life. You might, you might not be 100% convinced of this whole Christianity thing. You, you, you might not really believe in this, and that's okay. We're so glad that you're here. You might not even be 100% convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that there is life after death. But here's what I'm certain of. You're also not 100% convinced at the alternative, whatever that might be. And here's how I know that. Because you're sitting here today. And if you thought 100% that Christianity was a scam, that it was just this made-up thing, you would not be sitting here today. At the very least, you are curious. So allow me to speak to that curiosity here for just a minute. God loves you so much. He, he cares about you and longs for a relationship with you so badly. Your creator, that he looked down into this mess of a world and mind you, we created that mess. 
Originally, we had a very tight-knit relationship with God, but then we sinned and we caused this great divide between ourselves and God. And because God is so holy and because he is so set apart, he couldn't be close to us anymore. And he could have very well in that moment just looked down into the world and said, forget these people. I'm done with you. But he loves us so much that he sought to find a solution, and that solution came in the form of his perfect son, Jesus, who after spending some time on this earth was killed on a cross, paid the penalty for your mistakes, for our sins. And again, God didn't have to do this, but something had to take, something had to pay the price for our mistakes, for our sins. And so he gave us that in the form of his son, but three days later, he conquered the grave. And what Paul is saying and what Jesus is saying and what I am saying is that it is when you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And it's almost impossible to comprehend that the most high God would make the standard so simple that it comes down to trust Will you trust God? Do you believe in this? And that is how we get that relationship back. And at the end of this message, we're going to give those of you that maybe this is clicking for the first time, we're going to give you that opportunity to take that step and begin that relationship with God. But in the interest of of sharing our faith, and that's what we're talking about this morning, I'm going to kind of give you my closing plea here for any of you that are maybe skeptical of this whole thing. And this is often a thing that I go to when I'm having conversations with people and it seems like we're just going to agree to disagree and they're not really receptive to this whole Christianity thing. They just think it's kind of all made up. I always bring this up with them. I say, if I'm wrong about Jesus, I've wasted my life. If you're wrong about Jesus... You are wasting your eternity. Which option seems riskier? If I'm wrong about Jesus, I've wasted my life. But truthfully, have I really wasted my life? I mean, let's just say that I get to the end and I go into a a grave and that's just it. I mean, that's the end of it. Did did I really even waste my life? I know that's not going to happen because I I am just as convinced of my relationship with with Jesus as I am with my relationship with my wife. But let's just say hypothetically, if that was the case, could it even be said that I wasted my life? Because isn't it true that all of the things that Jesus embraces and that Jesus taught aren't those things that you want for your husband and you want for your wife and you want for your kids and you want for the people that are closest to you? I mean, don't you want the people that you care about most to be more generous and caring and loving to those around them? All these things that Jesus taught, that Jesus embraced, equality, all these things. I mean, Jesus was the one that invented that stuff. He's the one that came and called out all those things. So really, at the end of my life, I mean, if this is all a scam, I mean, okay. I don't even think I wasted my life because it's making me a better person. It's making my family better. It's making my kids better. It's making my wife better. But if you are wrong about Jesus, you are wasting your eternity, and that is a long time. I mean, that's like an eternity. (laughs) Don't resist this. Maybe today is the day where you finally stop and you go, you know what? I believe. I believe in you, Jesus. And you begin that relationship with him, a relationship that he is begging to have with you. So Paul presents the simplicity of Jesus, and then he goes on to address the fact that we can be so reluctant to share our faith with others. 
He starts and he asks a, a fairly rhetorical question. He says, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? Rhetorical question. And then he says, and he starts to put his thumb down on this whole idea that we can be a little reluctant to share our faith with others. And he says, and how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And then he just says it so bluntly. He says, and how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? In other words, we should feel, as a Jesus follower, if, if you're sitting here today and you call yourself a Christian, we should feel a little weight in this area. There should be an urgency when it comes to sharing our faith because after all, if we truly believe in this stuff, why wouldn't we want others to know about this as well? I mean, sh shouldn't it bother us that, that, that friends and family and, and coworkers and neighbors and people that we care a lot about, shouldn't it bother us that those people might spend eternity separated from their creator? Shouldn't that eat away at us a little bit? It's so easy to pass that responsibility off to someone else, like a pastor or somebody that works for a church. But what if the plan that God has in store for that person is you? What if you are the someone? And keep in mind, Paul's living at a time where the name of Jesus is spreading like crazy. Thousands and thousands of people are converting to Christianity. And it's not because Jesus is going around doing miracles. It's not because Jesus is going around telling people about himself. He's gone. He's up in heaven now. It's not because there's all these pastors that are running around and giving these really great speeches. No, no, no. It's because average, normal, everyday people like me and like you are going around telling people about Jesus. They won't shut up about it. Because he has so transformed their lives, they must tell other people. And then Paul wraps this whole thing up by addressing our biggest fear. This whole idea of rejection and what's going to happen if we really put ourselves out there. It says in this verse, he says, but not everyone welcomes the good news. Not everyone receives this. Hopefully, to a certain extent, this is freeing for you. Statements like this actually kind of encourage me because after all, if Paul, the guy that literally wrote like half of the New Testament, if he's telling me that he didn't have a 100% conversion rate, it tells me that I'm probably going to get rejected as well and that's okay. Not everyone is going to embrace it. Not every single person that you invite here is gonna show up. They may just turn it down but we can't allow that fear of rejection to be the thing that keeps us from opening our mouths in the first place because although they might not welcome it, it will never be as bad as you have dreamt it up in your head. They will never just like look across at you and be like, I can't believe you would dare tell me about Jesus and punch you in the face. They will, it is so rare, those moments when they're like, I can't believe you would bring this up. We're never talking again. Those things really don't happen. They're just things that we dream up in our heads. If they do ask you a question and you don't know the answer to it, I have an incredible solution for you. It's one that I employ all the time. You tell them, I don't no. Now, you don't tell them I don't know and then like head for the hills and never talk to them again. You tell them I don't know and you're diligent about actually finding the answer and finding the answer quickly for them and you go back to them and chances are just by the fact that you cared enough to seek out the answer to their question that you didn't know, they'll be impressed by that and it'll open up for another conversation that you get to have with that person. 
This past summer, I was at a golf course uh, with my younger brother. We played around, and then afterwards, we went inside to eat, uh, which is rare for me because I'm cheap. And, uh, but anyway, we went in there that day, and this probably isn't an accident, but God, for whatever reason, he, he, he was like really pressing in on me to have a conversation with our server. I don't know why. He's just like, he's like, come on, talk to her, talk to her, talk to her, more than just telling her your order, like talk to her, get to know this woman, and, and share me with her. And so I'm like, and I'm sweating it, like all the things that we all feel, and and so I, I finally, you know, kind of work it into the conversation and I kind of start presenting the gospel to her, telling her a little bit about Jesus. And, and I was convinced that because I knew God was telling me to have this conversation with her, that by the end of it, it would have like ended with me holding her hands and her coming to know Jesus and her telling everyone that she believes in the restaurant, but that didn't happen. She wasn't like closed off, but she also wasn't like super welcoming of what I had to say either. And in that moment, I remember feeling a little bit defeated, like, come on, God, like, I, I put myself out there. Like, how come you didn't give me, like, the victory? Like, how come I didn't get to see the kind of the fruit of what I had to say? And I remember when somebody told me this, it was so freeing for me, and it even allowed me to kind of see victory in those moments where I felt like I got rejected. You have no idea the role that those little moments might play in God's greater plan. You have no idea how God might use that one little moment for something greater. Because what if we were all, what if all of us that are sitting here today that call ourselves Jesus followers just started being obedient to those moments? I don't know if this happened, but what if the next day another Jesus follower walked in there after playing a round of golf and God put his, his little thumb on, 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 on the next person that walked in there. And then day two, another person talks to this woman about Jesus. Don't you think she'd be like, Gosh, that seems a little bit like a coincidence. But what if God did it a third day and a fourth day and a fifth day? I mean, how many times until that girl goes, what the heck is going on? And she leans in and she's curious and she does. And I might not get to see that moment. Somebody might get to finally hold her hands and lead her to the Lord. But I don't know how that one little step might have played in God's greater plan. We're not always going to see those moments. It's on us to be obedient for imperfect us to be used for God's perfect mission. And if you're a Jesus follower, that's probably your story. I bet you didn't say yes the first time. I doubt you showed up to church once and just everything clicked. I doubt one conversation changed everything. It was a series of events. It was a series of conversations. It was aha moments. It was a moment where you went, what the heck? This cannot be a coincidence anymore. It was a series of invitations. God wants to use imperfect you to accomplish his perfect mission. He desires to use you like you. And so Jesus followers, here's my charge for the morning. Here's my challenge to you. Start the conversation. Start the conversation. There is no chance it will be as awkward or as scary or as strange as you have dreamt it up to be in your head. Start the conversation. We try to give you tools here at Grumla to start that conversation. Every single uh, week you come in, we have these little invite cards on our seats. They look like little business cards. We actually don't even have business cards as staff. I encourage everybody to just carry these around with them. We, we encourage you to take these with you every day. Now, unfortunately, most of the time, we just find these like sitting on the ground afterwards, and we know that that's a reality, but, but our charge to you is to take these with you. Who is somebody that you need to hand this to this week? If you don't have the courage to come out and just have that conversation, who's a person that you just need to literally walk by and drop it on their desk? 
We have bumper stickers out at Grumlaw Central. Put one of those on your car. That's not to spread the name of Grumlaw, and, and my goodness, I know that this sounds ridiculous in a vacuum, but that little sticker might be the difference of somebody showing up or not showing up to church, and I've seen it happen. I'm not saying it's the thing that gets somebody to finally show up, but you don't know the other conversations that that individual has been having. You don't know the other places that they've already seen this, and that that might just be the thing that pushes that individual over the edge. Start actually getting to know your neighbors. I mean, this can be an embarrassing question, but do you know the names of your neighbors? I mean, the people that live directly next to you and the people that live across the street from you and behind you, do you know their kids' names? Start getting to know the other parents that you see on, on a weekly basis as you're at your kids' sporting events. Rather than just burying your head in your phone, actually start a relationship with those people. Start having conversations with them. Of course it's going to be awkward if you don't even know their name. Like, hey, how you doing? I'm Shay. Come to church with me. What? Get to know those people. Invite people over to dinner, and not just your closest friends, but I guarantee you, over the course of a 90-minute meal, this will come up. You will run out of things to talk about. Just by process of elimination, it will eventually come up in that meal. Ask permission to share how God has changed your life with that family member that's on your mind right now. I would be shocked if they said no. Easter's coming up. I mean, even the biggest heathens on the planet, they'll show up to church at Easter and Christmas. Invite them. Give them a reason not to come. Start the conversation. You will likely be shocked by the response. Believe it or not, this is so huge when we think about this. God desires to use you to impact people's eternities. God wants to use imperfect you to accomplish his perfect mission. 